Bibles, if you would please, and open them to 1 John chapter 3. And I am just indeed thankful for all of you to come out on the for the Wednesday night service, and uh, especially thankful for those of you that have stuck with us all the way through, and you play, pay close attention, and just really drink in God's Word as it's being taught. It's an awesome task that we have of teaching God's Word, and I hope that every Sunday school teacher that's here, every pioneer club worker that's here, that you would realize what a responsibility that you have every time that you take the Bible and you are instructing others in the Word of God. It's so important because we, we are handling issues of life and death. And we're also handling uh, the very thing that will help our people, the redeemed of God, to grow in the things of the Lord. So every time that you pick up the Bible and, and you're teaching somebody else, just remember that is a great responsibility that God has given us. And something else I might add to this is, uh, of course, what we do here is teach the Word of God. And there are people who think that the way to make the Word of God practical is to give lots of illustrations, to give object lessons, tell stories all of the time. The way to make God's Word practical is through the knowledge of God's Word. The way you make it practical is to actually teach the meaning of Scripture. You have to know the Word of God in your heart because what that will do for you, it will change your thinking. And to understand what God wants out of us, we have to think like God thinks. And you can't know that unless you first know the Word of God and then understand what it means. So that's the responsibility that I have as I preach to you is just simply to read the Word of God to you and then to explain what it means. And before we finish these different parts of this particular sermon, this one's going to go on for four parts as we talk about the issue of assurance. We're going to come back to that thought because that is, uh, you might hold on to that till we get down to the very last sermon because that's going to be the very last point. And that is that the knowledge of God's Word is the chief means of a Christian having assurance. Now, if you'll look here in verse number 19, this is going to be our subject for a few weeks. We're talking about the assurance of a believer. John says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Let me remind you once again of what's going on in 1 John. And you should be very much aware of this because uh, if you've attended the study for any amount of time, we've, I've said it over and over again, I repeat this, that John is trying to teach us here the method by which that you can know that you are a child of God. And he does that through a series of tests. And when the tests are applied, John lets us know that the results of those tests is a determiner of whether you truly are a Christian. And not only can you know that you're saved by the test that he gives, but of course you would know if you're not saved. And when we get to the next verse, starting in verse number 20, there's actually a lot of controversy about that verse. What does it mean? And we're going to be faced with some issues of interpretation when we get into that 20th verse. And the question about that, I'll just give you a little bit of a preview to it. Is, uh, is the point that John's trying to make in verse number 20, is he trying to lift our hearts when, with comfort when, we, when we're disturbed about our salvation, or is he warning us that if our conscience condemns us when we sin against God, that God is greater than our conscience and exceedingly even more condemning than our conscience could ever be? And that is a source of contention, and there are good Bible expositors on both sides of that question, and... Uh, 
I guess you might say in a way, unfortunately, the Greek text is not clear enough to make a definitive decision on which side of that John is actually speaking. But there is truth in both views, and so maybe the way to teach that is that we look at both sides of it and we garner the truth that comes out of both sides. But for now, we're just going to stick here with the issue of assurance. And this is a consuming topic. It's a, it's a very important one. Because on one hand, you have people that say, you have no right to assurance. You have no right to believe that once you're saved, that you can know that you're saved and you're actually on your way to heaven. And they say there is no possibility that you can know that. And not only can't you know it, but God doesn't want you to know it. God doesn't want you to know that you're saved. And they say that it is a presumptuous sin to say that you are eternally saved. And that in itself proves that you're not saved because you've committed that sin of presumption. Who teaches such things? Well, for one, the Roman Catholic Church does. The Roman Catholic Church councils have determined that assurance of salvation is a Protestant doctrine And those who claim to know that they're saved, without doubt, will be cursed for even thinking such a thing. Now, in their view, you can never have assurance that you are a child of God, and you're never going to know it until you die. You won't be able to find out until you die. And we might ask, well, why would people believe such a thing? Why, Why is that an important doctrine to them? Well, for one reason, it's because... They believe that if you know that you're saved, that you would go on living in sin. And that what you would do is that you would neglect all the good works that they say you have to have in order to get to heaven. And those who believe in falling from grace, that people like uh, some of the Methodists and Pentecostals and Church of Christ who believe in falling from grace, they have a sane view of this, only they put just a little bit of a different twist to it. And so when they argue against the doctrine of eternal security of the believer, they'll always go back to this point. If you know that you truly are saved, then what's to keep you from continuing in sin? And they say, well, if you can't fall from grace, then you can commit murder and you can commit adultery and sodomy and on and on and on they go with all these horrible sins that you would fall into if you could actually know that you're saved. So they always go to those huge, glaring sins. But they don't talk so much about telling a little white lie or getting angry at somebody or being a gossip or being a glutton. They don't talk about that. And we wonder, why don't those sins cause people to fall from grace? I remember when my dad used to debate Campbellites. If you don't know who Campbellites are, those are people who attend Church of Christ, Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. They're generally known, at least in our part of the country, as Campbellites because they're followers of Alexander Campbell. And the topic of eternal security was was always one of the main topics of debate. There were several others, but this particular one, falling from grace, eternal security, that was one of the main topics of debate. And one of the things that my dad would always ask these people, he would say, how many sins... Do you have to commit to lose your salvation? And what kind of sins can you commit that you won't lose your salvation? And in all the times of the debates that that I went through with him, I never heard any of them ever answer that question. And they know that they have to avoid that because to answer that question and to be consistent, they have to do one of two things. Either they say they don't sin 
or they're going to have to redefine sin. And so what the Campbellites would do is they would choose the latter of those two, and they would redefine sin. So I think I told you about this before, but there was a fellow on a radio station there in Kentucky who was a Campbellite preacher, a Church of Christ preacher, and he invited people to call in and ask questions, and he said, if you want to know if something is a sin, then you call me and I'll let you know whether that is a sin or not. And so they would call in, and, and uh, the really, really bad things that people do, you know, murder, stealing, things like that, yes, those are sin, but what he did was redefine the other ones, and he simply called those mistakes. They're not sins, they're just mistakes. Folks, that is the wrong view of this topic. I mean, if you can lose your salvation, then the issue of assurance that we find right here in 1 John is a moot point. We wouldn't even be talking about this if you could lose your salvation because what would be the point of assurance? Why would we talk about assurance if you can lose it? If salvation is guesswork, then we are doomed to just a miserable life of uncertainty and fear. And in fact, I have talked with Roman Catholics that speak of that very thing, constantly living in guilt and fear. And, well, they should. If you have a legalistic system of salvation, then you're never going to have anything but guilt. And that's because the law was never intended to save anybody. The law doesn't offer anybody forgiveness. The law is always rigid and hard. It's never going to produce anything but guilt. And that's exactly what the law was intended for. The law is intended to show us our helplessness that we can't keep it to show us our sinfulness, our hopelessness. And so if you're going to be saved by the good things that you do, then there never would be any assurance because even one sin, one kind of sin is a condemning sin. And that's because the law does not offer forgiveness. It's either keep the law perfectly or die. Well, the subject of the verse is assurance. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. Well, how do we know that? Well, the hereby uh, refers to the preceding verses. It's one of the tests, the test of love in this particular case. And you can assure your heart by passing the test of love. And the same is true for the other test that we've discussed. You can assure your heart by keeping God's commandments. You can assure your heart that you're saved by, by your doctrine, by what you believe about Jesus Christ. And folks, this is really just a great truth. Do you know that you're saved? And all of us are faced with that question. And I would dare say that there is not a Christian who ever lived that at some point in his Christian life that he didn't stop and think, is this all real? Am I really saved? Do I know that I'm really saved? I think just about surely everybody has faced that sometime in your life or another. Now, in in his book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, R.C. Sproul wrote that there are four possible positions concerning the assurance of salvation. I've listed these on your listening sheet tonight. You can write these down, fill in the blanks if you like, the different positions about assurance of salvation. Position number one is people who are unsaved and know they are unsaved. Position number two is people who are saved but do not know that they're saved. Position three is people who are saved and know they are saved. And position four is people who are not saved but are confident they are saved. So position number one, people who are unsaved and know, they, and know they're unsaved. Well, that, that's, you meet people like that. You start to talk to them about the Lord and they say, oh, I know I'm going to hell. 
and they laugh about that. They make fun of it. Yeah, I know that I'm going to hell. They're unconcerned about it. They are unsaved, and they know that they're unsaved. Position number two, people who are saved but do not know that they're saved. Well, how's that possible? Well, what that actually means, people that are saved, but they're uncertain of it. They don't have the assurance that they ought to have. Position number three is people that are saved and know they are saved, and I hope that's where we are. And position number four, people that are not saved but are confident they are saved. Now, I would say what John has been doing here in 1 John is constantly, consistently refuting the last group. And he's encouraging the second group. He encourages those that are saved, but they lack assurance. But then he turns around and he breaks the confidence of those who have unwarranted certainty that they are saved. So how does he do that? The test. Doctrine, morality, and love. That's what the tests are for. So our subject then in the messages is assurance. John says, and hereby we know. Some of you that have a Bible program on your computer, you can look this up, and you'll find here that the word for know is genosco. And it's a word that means to know absolutely. But it's also a word that does not mean that you know it by intuition. It's not just something that you know. It's something that you have to discover. It's something you have to find out. And that's what John is doing for us here. He's showing us how we can find out that we're truly saved. And I'll add to that that God wants us to find out. These are words written so that you will know for sure that you can assure your heart that you are really in the faith. You really are a child of God. You can have confidence that you are on your way to heaven. You can know it without doubt. And when you know it without doubt, you are immensely grateful and increasingly fruitful. Now, if you, it'll make you a worker for the cause of Christ if you know that you're truly saved. It'll increase your assurance in, in other ways, and uh, uh, the areas of, insur- of assurance that you, that you have in your life will, will be even greater than they were before. You'll want to hear good doctrine. You'll want to know everything that you can about Christ. You'll be more obedient. You'll have a heightened sense when you have sinned against God. It'll make you love him, make you love others in greater ways than you ever did before. It makes you give up yourself. It makes you do things for the benefit of others. It actually becomes a perpetual process. When you start gaining assurance, it just feeds on itself. Assurance keeps coming over and over again. When you get into that vein of assurance, it perpetuates itself, so you have greater assurance. We shall assure our hearts before him. So in the time we have remaining tonight, we're going to get into this message. And everything I've just said is introduction. There's, there's a lot more that I could say to you in introduction because it is such a big topic. Uh, a few years ago when we studied the statement of faith, I preached seven messages on this topic. And then when we studied the book of Philippians, I took three messages and spoke about it then. But I haven't approached it in the way that we're going to do it during these four messages in this study. So we're going to look at it from just a little bit different angle than we had before. So the purpose of the messages is to get you into position number three, people that are saved and know that they're saved. So how are we going to make that happen? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to recognize that there are legitimate barriers to assurance. And unless you rightly understand these things, these will prevent you from having assurance. And there must be some barriers, because if there weren't, then everybody that's saved would all the time know that they're saved, and they'd never have any doubts. So there has to be something there that causes us to have a lack of assurance. 
Now, I'm going to concentrate on just three areas tonight, but as we go through all four messages, some of these things will come back up again, and you'll see why people lose their assurance of salvation. So I'm going to call these, what we're going to talk about tonight is the problematic factors of assurance. What kind of things cause us to lose our assurance of salvation? So we're going to deal with problems tonight. And then for the next two weeks, we'll talk about it in a more positive way. And we'll start to look at some very important doctrines that prove that we can have assurance. But there are some problematic factors that affect assurance, and they are legitimate ones. And you have to learn how to deal with them and take the proper approach to them. Now, the first of these, and they might surprise you what they are, the first problematic factor of assurance is God's presence. It's the realization that you are in God's presence. John says, we shall assure our hearts before him. We are in the presence of God every single second of every day of our lives. And when you understand who God is, you'll begin to understand how intimidating that it actually is to be always in God's presence. And it's a foolish person who doesn't understand that you're in the presence of the omnipotent creator and and that he can crush you easier than you can step on a bug on the sidewalk. It's intimidating to be in the presence of God. It's intimidating to understand that the, the, the holy angels can only utter in the presence of God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. They fear God. And if you know him, you'll fear him too. You know, I'm amazed that we can come into the house of God and during the preaching that people can take out their telephones and surf the web on a smartphone while God's talking to us through the preaching. I'm amazed that people can do things like that. I'm amazed that people can carry on a conversation with somebody next to them when God's speaking through his word. I'm amazed that people can fall asleep when God's speaking through his word. We just don't understand how intimidating it is to really be in the presence of God. Solomon said this in the Proverbs. He said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And then he said, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. Peter said, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Can you imagine what that must be like, to have the face of the Lord against those that do evil? I mean, could you possibly come into the house of God in a place like this and do something that's evil? I mean, what happens when people realize they're in the presence of God? Well, biblically speaking, when people knew that they were in the presence of God, it was a traumatic experience. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had a vision of the glory of God. I mean, uh, he saw creatures that are real, creatures that are out there even though we can't see them. And in the sixth chapter, God had gave him a vision, and we notice in the first four verses the revelation of God's majesty. And then when we get to verse number five, it's the reaction of Isaiah's misery because he's in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5 says, Then said I, this is Isaiah, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now that's real. There's a spiritual world filled with wonder and majesty in the presence of Almighty God. And you can't escape that. It's as real as you are. But then we see that reaction of the misery of Isaiah because he knows who he is. He's a sinner. He's unclean. Was he a child of God? Well, of course he was a child of God. He's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But he didn't feel much like a great prophet of God when this scene... He pales in God's presence. He says, I'm unclean. I'm a vagabond. He said, I'm undone. And what that means is I perish because I've come into the presence of Almighty God. When Gideon spoke to the angel of the Lord's host, which was a pre-manifestation of Jesus Christ, Gideon said, alas, O Lord God. And that's the same thing nearly as Isaiah says. It has almost the same meaning. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Manoah, Samson's father, said, We shall surely die because we've seen God. Job spoke with God and he said, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Peter saw that miracle of the great catch of fish, he realized that he was in God's presence when Jesus was there. And he said, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then the Apostle John, the very same Apostle who writes this, talking about assurance, said this in Revelation, the first chapter. He said, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. My friend, if you don't have a great fear of the Lord and recognize how insignificant that you are and how undeserving you are, that you are worse than a bug that you crush under your feet, then you're a fool. You know why? Because you squash a bug, and that's the end of him. But you know what Jesus said? He said, fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do, do, you, do you see what God's presence does? You know, it sickens me when I hear preachers on television like Osteen and Copeland and Schuler and those guys talk, uh, uh, preach self-esteem. And, and in Copeland's case, or Joyce Meyer's case, I don't know if you watch these kinds of people, but they have a doctrine that says that you are a little God and that you have the right to go and demand from God all of your rights. Fear God because he can destroy you. I mean, when you think about this, I mean, God could withhold your heart from beating. Fear him because the very next breath that you take, you owe to God. And you think about that. Isn't that not a barrier to assurance? I mean, what if for a second that God was going to shut off his mercy toward you? What if for just for a, a split second of anger, God decided to flick you away like a flea? What happens to you then? Now, it's true as true can be that we are undone. We are people of unclean lips. We are in the presence of Almighty God. And when you know that, you have to know that you should fear him. But at the same time, you have to have that fear counterbalanced by the assurance that God wants you to have. God wants you to 
have the assurance of your, of your salvation. He wants you to know like David did, that even though when you sin against him, if you admit your sin, repent of your sin, confess your sin, God is always willing to forgive. You have to understand that you are connected to the life-giving source. And it's because of Jesus Christ that you can stand in the presence of God. There are barriers to assurance, but there's also ways to answer all of those barriers. Now, secondly, and and closely related to that, is God's perfection. Coming face-to-face with God's holiness and his righteousness and his expectations is a barrier to your assurance. In other words, when you come face-to-face with God, you come face-to-face with his high demands of the law. And your assurance is affected by that. When you understand that you have come short of the glory of God, assurance of salvation is affected by that. Let me take you back to some earlier comments in the introduction. What do you think is going to happen to you when you're taught that you have to keep sacraments and you have to keep commandments, you have to do penance, you have to keep on working, you have to make restitution for your sins or you're not going to get to heaven? What's going to happen when you're taught that salvation is maintained in your own strength by your good works? What happens to you is you come face to face with God's law and you hit the barrier of God's perfection. And that's when your worst fears are realized because you have nowhere to turn. You don't have anywhere to go. There's not a thing that you can do that can make you even one inch closer to God. So you're shut out by God's law because the law says if you are going to come my way, then you have to keep every bit of it perfectly, right down to the tiniest tiniest thing that you can think of. It all has to be kept perfectly. Jesus had another way of saying that. Remember this? He says, as good as you can be, the best of the very best, it's not going to help you. And he said to the people, for I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. He said in the end of that same chapter, you have to be perfect as God is perfect. And so what he did was he took the very best that the world has to offer and he just dismissed it with a wave of his hand. You shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Now those people represented the very tip top of man's goodness, the very best that man can do. And there was not a one of them that could jump high enough to reach the first rung of Jacob's ladder. They couldn't get close to God. Jesus said, you must be perfect as God is perfect. But there are also true Christians, of course, that have hit that wall. We're not just talking about lost people trying to get to heaven by their good works. There are Christians that have hit this wall, and they become despondent about it. And it's not uncommon for people to come and see me with droopy eyes and sadness in their voices, and they say, I'm struggling with sin. I've got things going on in my life. I I can't overcome this. And, and every time they get one problem conquered, there's another one or ten more behind that that's always nipping at them, and they're always struggling with sin. And so they wonder, what's wrong with me? Am I saved? Why is it so difficult for me? Why am I struggling with my sins? And my message is not particularly about that tonight, but folks, if you are concerned about sin and you're fighting against sin and you're trying to get rid of sin, that's evidence that you're saved. That's not the person I'm worried about. I'm worried about the one who's complacent about his sin. I'm worried about the person who's never concerned that he sins. The one I worry about is the one who goes every single day unaffected by the things that he does without even seeing that there is a barrier of God's law in front of him. That's the fellow I worry about. I worry about 
professed Christians that aren't totally miserable when they sin against God. And I worry about Christians that can just dismiss the church and sit around saying, oh, I know I'm saved. And they're confident for no good reason. In other words, I worry about Category 4 people. People that are confident that they're saved, but they really don't have a reason to be. Something's not right. I I worry about Category 4 people like I worry about a Category 4 hurricane. Because there's coming some unexpected destruction at some time or another. Well, there's a third reason. And this one's very closely connected to the first two. The third one is God's punishment. God's presence, God's perfection, God's punishment. That's also a bearer. That is a problematic factor in assurance. Because God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. Because of all of those things, he also punishes sin. Now, I hope you got those earlier verses that we read a moment ago about God's eyes being everywhere, about God seeing every single moment of every single day. He knows every move that you make, every deed that you do, every thought that you think. Sometime you ought to read through the book of Ezekiel and see what God said about Israel. Israel's God's chosen people, aren't they? And what did he say about them when they sinned? Well, it's a kind of an interesting read through the book of Ezekiel. In the seventh chapter, four times, he used the word recompense. And that's a word that means to pay out. It means to reward. It's like God saying, I'm going to put it to you. Listen to what God says, Ezekiel 7, verse 3. He says, Now is the end come upon thee, and I will send mine anger upon thee, and will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense upon thee all thine abominations. In the fourth verse, he says, I will recompense thy ways upon thee. In the eighth verse, I will judge thee according to thy ways and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. In the ninth verse, I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth. And then going to chapter 9 and chapter 11, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 23, he uses the same word again. And what he says, in effect, I am going to nail you to the fullest extent possible. You can't even imagine what I'm going to do to you. And that's a sobering thought. God punishes sin. And it's worse than anybody can ever imagine. You know why nobody wants to talk about hell? They don't want to talk about hell because they never got a picture of how angry that God is about sin. What people think is that God treats sin like like they treat sin. That God just doesn't think anything about it. I mean, it's all going to come out in the wash, isn't it? And what they don't understand is that the detergent that God uses is an everlasting fire. It's going to come out in the wash, all right. Jesus said that that fire is a fire that is not quenched, and he said it's where the worm never dies. Do you know what that means? He's talking there about a worm that gets into the corpse of decaying bodies and eats that corpse. And he says, in this place, the punishment is on and on and on and on. The worm never dies. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So we know that God's the righteous judge. And he said, I'm not going to acquit the guilty. He's to be feared because of his judgment and because of his punishment. So if you spend your time sinning, then don't you think that the surety of God's punishment would be a barrier that would be a problematic factor for your assurance? 
You see, all of these facts have to be overcome. The factors have to be overcome. You have to understand how do these things get taken care of. How can we overcome these issues that are all these factors that are problems of how we have assurance? How are you going to stand in God's presence? What happens when you meet God's perfection? How, are you going to, how is God going to deal with you according to punishment? And here's one of the places where we must return to the knowledge of God. You have to have good doctrine to be able to understand how all of this is taken care of. It is very important how you handle the word of truth. How are you going to get assurance? Well, you've got to know what God's word says about all of these issues. There's an answer to them. There's a way through all of these problematic factors. There is a solution for them. Now, the next time when we come back, we're going to talk about Solutions. We're going to talk about great doctrines from God's Word. How does God show us that we can really have assurance of salvation? The knowledge of God's Word, as I said, is going to come up over and over again. About That's how we get our chief assurance. What do we know about God's Word? What does He say? How can we have assurance? How does He let us know it? Well, thank the Lord for His Word, for His truth, and I pray that the Lord will always keep us in position number three saved and we know that we're saved let's pray heavenly father we thank you that we're able to look into your word tonight and we thank you for the truths that the apostle john has given us here i i pray that you would help each one of us to very very clearly understand that we are in your presence tonight that there is punishment for sin that there is perfection your perfection that we're up against every single day of our lives We have to keep that in memory, keep that in our minds, and never think that we can ignore you in anything that we do. We thank you, Lord, that there is a way to overcome all of these problems, the natural problems that we have that would cause us not to have assurance. You help us to see our way through it, and you tell us that we can know for sure that we are saved and on our way to heaven. Bless our people tonight, Lord. Thank you for the study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.